uh, great. Thank you uh, very much, Christine. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for the guys playing for us and leading uh, for us. Um, it's uh, wonderful. And uh, welcome again uh, to uh, this morning to our Easter Sunday service. And um, as I hope you've been picking up as we've gone through this service, Easter is by far and away the most important time in the calendar for uh, Christians, namely because without Easter, without the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, physically dying on the cross, but more significantly without him doing the impossible and rising again from the dead three days later, Christianity doesn't exist. It doesn't hang together and it can't be true. In fact, the Bible explicitly makes that point. The Apostle Paul says of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain and our faith is meaningless. That's quite a thing for the Bible to say. But Paul goes on one step further, a few verses later, saying that, in fact, if Christ has not been raised, then we who are pretending to live for this man in our present lives are to be pitied above all others. Because Christians are living a lie. The Bible actually says that of the Bible, of the resurrection. (coughs) So the stark reality of Easter is that for the Christian, it is the resurrection or bust. Jesus has to rise from the dead for Christianity to be true and and exist and for our faith to be firm. And so this morning, I want to do two things as we look at the resurrection account of Jesus that has been read to us from John 20 this morning. And that is to remind us of who, um, those of us who are believers in Jesus, just how monumental this act is and why the resurrection should inform and affect every single part of our lives. It is so easy for us as Christians to skim over Jesus and over Easter weekend and it becomes an overly familiar thing for us that we don't do much about. Well, I hope this morning we get to reignite our wonder at the cross and the resurrection, allow it to be celebrated in our lives as it should. I was just speaking to Anne, who said we should be saying every morning, every Sunday morning, Christ has risen, he has risen indeed. (laughs) That's absolutely right, Anne. That's the attitude we need to have when we're considering what Jesus has done for us in our lives with unspeakable joy and hope. And for those of you here this morning who maybe don't know Jesus, and all this is perhaps a bit weird at best, perhaps uncomfortable at worst, uh, well, can, can I just say that I, I, I hope you're genuinely wanting to know more about Jesus. It's great to have you here. Again, I hope you might stay behind and, and ask some questions. I want to show you this morning how you can believe in the resurrection, how the accounts that we read this morning show that Jesus really is God, that he really did what he said he did, that he really rose again from the dead, and that those things have a profound effect on you this morning a living effect on you this morning, leaving you as John does with that last sentence that was read um, to us by Christine, um, who allows us to, to, to follow him and have life in his name. Leaving you as John does with a very direct invitation to follow him, presenting you with the most important decision that you will ever make in your life. And I want to start this morning by starting with that biggest of hurdles when we come to passages like John 20 this morning, and that is the fact that it is unbelievable We struggle to believe something like this, and and we do so because it stems from the very common but understandable misunderstanding, I think, that in order to believe something, you had to have been there to see it, especially if it is outrageous. And that is very much the kind of world that we live in, isn't it? Reason, straight-driven, fact-driven, sight-driven, scientifically challenged, uh, materialistic, sceptical. And the overriding truth is that if you weren't there to witness something, you just cannot be 100% sure that it happened at all. Well, before we go any further, let me just um, bop that challenge on the head for a moment. 
Because first off, we all know that that's just not true. Whether we are Christians this morning or believers of other faiths or atheists, we all know that it is not true that you have to be present to believe that something happened. The whole of our understanding of history is built on that fact. I wasn't there during the First World War. I just wasn't, but I believe it happened. How do I believe it happened? Through masses of eyewitness testimony passed down from generation to generation. That and some perilously dodgy film footage and video footage, which sort of helps corroborate it. But, but I am more won over by those people who were there. Eyewitness testimony from British service personnel that matches up with the French eyewitnesses were saying, and, and those from the US who were serving in the war at the same time. There's too much corroborating evidence. It just all makes sense. I can't doubt the First World War or the Holocaust or even the deeds and misdeeds of Henry VIII. I, I, I truly believe all those things happened. Written, historically verifiable text, eyewitness testimony, all, all transcribes and bears it to be true. I didn't have to be there to believe it. This is also how our legal system is based, isn't it? I can believe in the truth of an unrepeatable event that I didn't see myself as a jury member or as a judge and be convicted beyond all reasonable doubt that it happened by the eyewitness testimony of someone who was there and, and the wealth of evidence that backs us up. So much so that I believe that Thomas Cashman brutally and heartbreakingly murdered little Olivia Pratt-Corbell. We've been looking at that case a lot over the last few weeks. It's heartbreaking, cold blood, as she tried to run into her mother's arms and not quite making it. I don't make that out of an emotional point, but from an eyewitness testimony point. Those who actually took their own lives in their hands to turn in Olivia's killer, even though they knew that they might be putting themselves in danger with all the local gangs. Why would you lie about that? along with all the footage of the event, the community corroborating facts, people sticking their necks out despite fear of their personal safety. I, the judge, the jury, can make a judgment call beyond all reasonable doubt as to what happened and uh, a call on the sentence. And we all know that, all of us. Spiritually minded or not, materialist or existentialist, secular humanist or Christian scientist or like me, a bit more arty, we all know that we don't need to be at an event to believe that it happens. Otherwise, we don't believe in anything at all. I can't believe any family memory about my late grandfather, who I never met, if I think I can only believe in something that I was there to see. I can't believe in any part of history, which means I'll repeat its mistakes. I can't believe any court judgment, which means that justice will never be won. I can't believe the account of my wife's day, which means our marriage will never be happy. And, and I can't believe the words of my closest friend, which means a relationship will never be kept. You see? It's, it's just categorically untrue uh, and an unlivable reality to think that we can't believe something that we weren't there to witness ourselves. What we do need is someone who was there, someone faithful and trustworthy, who can tell others and me what they saw, which is backed up by evidence, stands to reason, and makes sense of the incident which they are speaking about. And for those of you who haven't maybe read the Bible or aren't quite sure what's in it, that is basically what the Bible is. The Gospels in the New Testament, the, the New Testament is written, the Old Testament as well, but, but especially the Gospels, they are, they are written as a reliable account by eyewitnesses who were there of the life, death, and resurrection of a real man called Jesus who they really lived with. And it's that point that runs all the way through John 20, culminating in that final verse in verse 31. If you've got your Bibles open, do look down. They will really help us as we go through this. Just read that with me. John, John says, these words are written so that you might believe... That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, even though we weren't there to see it. 
and by believing that you may have life in his name. That is why the resurrection account is here, so that you can know the truth of what happened about Jesus, as incredible and unrepeatable as this act may be, and come to follow this Jesus for yourself. And it's amazing, it also makes perfect sense, that the resurrection passage here is actually centred around a man who could not believe what he had not seen, and who refused to believe the eyewitness testimony, but who came to believe. And that man's name is Thomas. And in our cynical, materialistic, secular age, we can all resonate with the words Thomas speaks in verse 24 and 25, can't we? Just have those open in front of you now. Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, no, no, no. Unless I see his hands, the marks of his nails, then place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his size, I will never believe. It's just never going to happen. How very 21st century. How, how very sensible, we might say, of Thomas. And how very helpful for us. For if we didn't have Thomas, doubting Thomas, cynical Thomas, questioning Thomas, we wouldn't have an example of someone like you and me, perhaps, looking at the resurrection and going, really? No way. It's insane. The account of Thomas gives the resurrection more credence. It's exactly how a normal person would have reacted to the news of Jesus. I just don't believe it. And yet Jesus rebukes him. See that in verse 29? After Thomas sees Jesus with his own eyes, sees the scars, his wounds, he falls to his knees and proclaims Jesus as Lord, my Lord and my God. He says in full belief, Jesus lovingly rebukes him. Verse 29, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those like you and me sitting here today who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, Thomas, you should have believed. And you should have believed despite you not seeing me because the people who told you were trusted eyewitnesses of what you knew. And that's really important for us sitting here this morning as we weigh up the New Testament against truth. For John's gospel, the entire eyewitness account of the entirety of Jesus' life sets out to make sure that these 12 disciples, these 12 apostles, are marked out as being firm, verifiably reliable and appointed men who are going to give a wholly true account of Jesus to those of us who couldn't be there. And Thomas, of all people, should have known that. At the beginning of John's gospel, John 1.14, John writes this, We, that is John himself and the other apostles, including Thomas, who were there in the upper room in John 20, he says, we all have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. That means the glory that Jesus really is the son of God, full of grace and truth. We who are writing these books are, are verifiable, appointed eyewitness testimony to the truth, says John. And you knew that, Thomas, says Jesus, in this upper room. In John 15, 26, Jesus himself says this, but when the helper comes, that's the spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me after he's resurrected and ascended into life. And then Jesus says, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the very beginning. You see, the whole of the gospel has been designed to establish the, authentic, the apostles as authentic, reliable, true eyewitnesses of the Jesus that we see in the Bible. These guys were with me, says Jesus. They saw everything from the very beginning, chronicled everything about me. They are reliable, Thomas. It's incredible, isn't it, how much a source um, of a statement is, matters hugely as to whether you believe it or not. 
if someone came up to you and said something truly extraordinary, and that person was your spouse, who you'd lived with for many, many years, you, you've had children with them, you, you trust that they've never proven themselves to be outrageous liars in any way, shape, or form, then you're pretty much going to believe them. You might be incredulous with them. Wow, gosh, tell me more. That, that is remarkable. That's crazy. Sort of conversation you have with your spouse when something crazy happens in their life and they tell you about it. But if Donald Trump comes up to you and tells you something extraordinary, it would be stupid for you to believe him uh, on balance. <laughs> he's a known liar. Someone who doesn't even pretend that he's not lying, you can't believe. You can't take his word for anything. You just can't. That's not even, I don't think, a politically controversial statement. Someone who supported him once commented, well, we know he lies, but at least he wins. <laughs> well, he doesn't even win. The source of information hugely matters with eyewitness testimony, especially of unrepeatable, incredible events. And the source of information that you received, Thomas, was not a Donald Trump figure. It was these reliable men and women who had seen the truth and were charged with telling it. The point here in this passage, then, this Easter Sunday morning, you do not need to have seen Jesus to believe in him. You do not need to be a Thomas and only believe in him because you have seen and touched his risen body. Indeed, blessed are you, says Jesus, better is it for you, more happy is it for you in your life, in other words, to look at the eyewitness testimony of the 12 and see the eyewitness testimony verified and the facts given, the historical record, and believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that you may have life in his name. And Thomas, as much as he doubted when he shouldn't have his, it is helpful for us, isn't it? For the eyewitness testimony is only as good as the immediate proof. And in Doubting Thomas, we see ourselves who doubt. And in Doubting Thomas, we see the eyewitness testimony of the risen Jesus verified. Jesus allows himself to be put up to scrutiny. Watch me, see me, examine me. I am evidence. Thomas does see. He is allowed to touch. And he is allowed to check for our sake that the eyewitness accounts were right. And they were. And that brings us to our first point very quickly as for the rest of our time this morning that, uh, that Thomas has come to know. First point of three things that Thomas has come to know um, as we finish. Well, I think he's come to know three things. First, that Jesus rose again from the dead. Secondly, that in so doing, Jesus has reconciled humans and God together in a wonderful relationship. And thirdly, that Jesus now reigns in glory and is wanting us to know him personally. First of all, Jesus has risen from the dead. This is an important place to start. We're looking at Christianity as a whole. What are the facts of the resurrection? Are they wild or do they make sense? Well, this is what John 20 does. It displays all the facts that surround Jesus rising from the dead. And the facts, as I want you to see now, make perfect sense in the light of someone rising from the dead. They all stand up to scrutiny. And, and actually, the account starts back in chapter 19, verse 38. If you've got your Bibles, just flick over the page. Just go back a chapter to 19, verse 38. And we're brought to see the amount of effort that was put into burying Jesus. Just read those verses with me. Verse 38 of chapter 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came mixing a, a, a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds worth of weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. 
So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was at hand, they laid Jesus there. In short, the body of Jesus was definitely dead. It is accounted for in history that it had died, that he had died. The process of embalming Jesus here in John 20 takes hours. And consider the, the account was written at a time when a lot of the soldiers of Jesus' death would have been alive. If this were not true, they would have been screaming from the rafters that it was alive. But notice the amount of detail involved in preparing the body for burial. He's embalmed in 75 pounds worth of oils and ointments. If crucifixion didn't kill you, that certainly would. He's bound enough to be suffocated. Um, the place where he's buried is named. It's, it's in public record. You can go and check it out for yourselves. The people who did all this are named. It's a matter of Roman public record. Joseph of Arimathea, a well-known man to everyone in Jerusalem. Um, um, Nick Nicodemus as well, both of them part of the Jewish ruling elite. Why would you make this up? Why would you write all this at the time when you could have been checked out? It would have been uncovered very quickly. The date is mentioned, the embalming process is mentioned. It all stacks up to how people were buried at the time. It just makes sense. You couldn't make this up. You literally couldn't. Jesus is definitely dead. He's not asleep. He's not swooned, as many people suggest. He's definitely dead. He's definitely buried in intimate detail, all of which is verifiable. Then we have the first eyewitness testimony of the empty tomb, verses 1 to 10 of chapter 20. Just skip over them with me. Look at the people who are all named again. You see the same thing. All of them corroborate each other. All of them react exactly as you would expect them to. Mary arrives at the tomb first, sees a massive stone rolled away. You couldn't make that up. Tombstones like this were, were, were many tons heavy, needed many people to move them. And to make sure you know exactly which Mary we're talking about, we're talking about Mary Magdalene, her surname is mentioned. There are loads of Marys in Jesus' day. It was an incredibly common name. John's saying, I want you to know exactly who I'm talking about here. I'm not hiding this. You can go and chat to her. She arrives. She can't believe what she sees. Neither should she. Um, people don't rise from the dead. Her reaction is exactly what you expect. So she runs to Peter and John, the disciples, and says what we would say, verse 2. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. What she doesn't say is, oh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He says, oh, someone's stolen his body. Th that makes perfect sense. That's exactly the thing that you would say. The disciples, John and Peter, arrive. The detail of, of them getting to the tomb is quite astonishing, isn't it? Verses 3 to 4. Peter starts off first, he's a bit old and slow, so John, the writer of this gospel, he sort of overtakes him, gets there first, he sort of looks in from the outside, then Peter overtakes him and goes inside. It's all unnecessary detail if it's not true. John sees the bandages without a body. Peter sees the bandages without a body. Mary is telling the truth. And they run because they can't believe it. They're not expecting this. We see that in verse 9, for as of yet they did not understand the scriptures which said that Jesus must be raised from the dead. They didn't get it. People don't raise from the dead. <laughs> See, this wasn't a con by Jesus' disciples. Their reactions shows that they are shocked as everyone else would be. And where do we find these disciples at the end of the chapter? After having seen the empty tomb, they are still petrified. After having remembered that they've been told three times by Jesus that he was going to raise from the dead, they are still petrified. They're locked away for fear of the Jews, for fear of being found in association with Jesus. This wasn't a con. They were terrified that Jesus had died. Ordinary reactions from ordinary people in the face of an extraordinary event. First century men and women, it seems, are much like 21st century men and women who don't expect people to come alive again. So the tomb is definitely empty and no one is expecting it. Again, no announcement from the Romans that this was all fake. 
It was to the Romans' benefit that they present the body of Jesus to prove that he really was dead and that he wasn't God. And in one fell swoop, they would have killed off religion, Christianity, the one thing that was of the greatest threat to the empire. It would have been gone in a heartbeat. The disciples knew that, which is why they were hiding. But they don't. They can't present the body. As one secular historian puts it, the silence of history concerning the presenting of Jesus' body by those who wish to prove him dead is deafening. But the facts don't come there. We come to the physical appearance of himself in verses 11 to 18. Scan over those. Again, normal responses from Mary. She's weeping because uh, her reason rightly tells her that the one that she has loved is, is dead and her, his body is gone. She can't even mourn now. And by this time, morning is broken. She blinks in the sunlight and she sees Jesus but mistakes him for a gardener. Of course she does because she doesn't expect a dead body to be risen from the dead. She has a full conversation with him. So sure is she that Jesus doesn't rise from the dead. And then Jesus speaks. He is now face to face with her, close enough for her to cling to. He calls her by name and now she recognizes him in the cold light of day. Her Lord, the body that was dead and is now alive again, and she recognizes him, and he is physical. This isn't a manifestation, it's not a hallucination, because verse 17, she throws herself on him and clings to him. Don't cling to me, says Jesus, go and tell the others. And from verses 19 to 23 onwards, Mary does just that, and Jesus presents himself again in physical form to all the disciples as a living, breathing, physical proof. Verse 19, on the, 18, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus is most definitely raised, physically raised, bodily raised, verifiably raised. Many different people seeing him in the flesh at the same time, complete with wounds in his hands, his side, the very wounds he got from the crucifixion on the cross. This is not a specter. This can't be a hallucination. That doesn't work with masses of people. It's also not a body double. His wounds prove that. The only truth that fits the facts and the evidence is that Jesus is bodily raised. And after the shock... After 19 verses of each eyewitness being unsure, pitted with moments of disbelieving realisation, finally we get to full-blown belief. Verse 20, seeing the evidence for themselves, the disciples, his friends, were glad when they saw the Lord. The fear has gone, gladness has now come, they knew it was him. And eight days later, as Jesus stands in front of Thomas, as he offers Thomas to see and touch his human raised physical body, so Thomas is brought to see what he should have always seen. That the eyewitness of the fact of the raised Jesus was more than enough to go on. The eyewitness testimony was more than tight enough and reliable enough and true enough and reasonable enough and rigorous enough for him to have all the information he needed to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And as Thomas sees Jesus in his loving rebuke, so he's brought to the same belief in him as the others are. Verse 27, then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas, without moving, imagine, without having to touch him, he simply answers, oh, my Lord and my God. And those words of Thomas bring us to our last 
two points much more quickly this morning, because those words of belief show exactly what Jesus has proven to be in front of Thomas and the disciples. That he is not a clever trickster who pulled an elaborate car, not even that he's a profoundly powerful man who has beaten death, but rather that he is someone who has proven to be the Lord God of eternity himself, the only person who could beat death. That brings us to our second point. For point one, not only has Thomas come to realise and believe that Jesus rose, but that in doing so, point two, Thomas now believes that Jesus has finally reconciled us as humans with the holy God of creation himself. My Lord and my God, says Thomas, I believe that you are my Lord and my God. And Thomas can say those words because of what Jesus almost innocuously announces as he appears in the upper room just a few verses earlier in verse 26. Blink and you'll miss them. Just read those with me. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. And those four innocuous words are the most incredible words in history that Jesus could say at that moment. Because those words are not just a, hi guys, how are you? They are packed with unimaginably deep theological truth. And that truth is that because Jesus is now standing amidst humanity in his resurrected flesh, full peace, full reconciliation, full harmony, full relationship, a, a total wholeness has been made possible between fallen, evil, sinful, wretched humanity and the holy, almighty, powerful, perfect, eternal God of creation. And that is extraordinary. And, and that peace, that oneness with God that we can now enjoy can only happen because of Easter, because of the cross, because of Jesus having risen again from the dead and standing in his physical risen flesh, proving that he has dealt with the one thing that cuts us all off from enjoying God as we were meant to as humans, and that is our sin which leads to our death. And that is everything that Jesus has been teaching throughout the whole of John's Gospel in the New Testament. For there is one searing reality that rips through the whole of the Bible like, a, like an, a knife through skin. And that is that, that we are as humans fallen and rebellious, sinful creatures. Created by a good God, yet we don't want to know him. Loved by a good God, and yet we hate him. Given life by a good God, and yet we want to be gods of our own lives. Denying that he exists, not giving him the praise that he's due. Desperate for help, but unable to bring ourselves to ask our creator for it. And we know that's the reality we live in. The world is in such a state. Our relationships are such a mess, all because we turn our back on our creator. And because of that, God can't have anything to do with us. We're cut off from him. He is holy and pure and righteous and perfect. And we are all the opposites, unholy, impure, unrighteous, deeply imperfect. And the Bible reminds us that the wages of our sin, the payment we have to give because we are sinful, imperfect creatures who hate God, that is death. That's what we're giving money towards, our death. And so there is enmity, division, war, if you like, between us and God. We lose, we die. We don't deserve to live in God's good world under his rule and blessing. The wages of sin is death, says Paul, but... He continues immediately that the gift of God is eternal life. Through whom? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And here he is, Jesus Christ, my Lord, says Thomas, the perfect sinless son of God, God himself, sent into the world to make himself known to, to wretched, sinful people like you and me and dying across the death that you and I deserved. 
and thereby paying the wages of sin that I should have been paying. Jesus paid it instead. In my place, he died, I didn't. He took on himself the anger of God for sin, I didn't. And he rose again from the dead, beating death, crippling that last horrible barrier between mortal us and immortal God once and for all. And as Jesus stands in front of Mary and John and Peter and the disciples in the upper room and Thomas, he presents himself in all his physical, real, wounded, yet perfected, risen, bodily glory as God himself and says, peace be with you. It's mind-blowing. I'm not making this up, says the risen Jesus. I'm alive. I said I would be. I've proved I have been. I present myself to remind you that I always will be. Because I died for you in my perfection, says Jesus in these four words. I took the punishment you deserve because I died for sin in my perfection. I paid the price you couldn't afford to pay. And because I rose again from the dead in my perfection, it proves that death is beaten for the believer. Life has been won for humanity again. The effects of sin are totally broken and a way to an eternal peaceful relationship with the Father God in glory that had been missing before I came is now in reach. It's now possible. God is satisfied with my death says Jesus. He is satisfied with my payment for your soul, says Jesus. And he is satisfied with you who call on my name to be saved. And that is everything that the Gospel of John has been saying would happen since chapter 1. John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, says John the Baptist as he points directly at Jesus. John 1, 51, truly I tell you, says Jesus, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's talking about his ascension to heaven after he's been raised. You're going to see that. John 1, 12, to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. I did it. It's done. A tetelestai, he screams on the cross. That means the price has been paid. It is finished. It's paid for. I won. I'm here. Peace to you. For all time and for eternity, you no longer have to die. Sin paid for. Wrath of God satisfied. Justice achieved. Death defeated. Full forgiveness offered. The family and kingdom of God open to you forever. And you had to do nothing for it, says Jesus. It was all me. Sometimes we think we have to offer something to Jesus to be forgiven or work at some kind of societal or religious good to be with Jesus, keep up our certain prayers or keep up our religiosity. And when we've done enough of that good, he'll finally at some point relent and say, "Okay, on balance, you're not bad. And now I'll accept you. Now you can be forgiven. No, it doesn't work like that. What have these guys in the upper room done for Jesus to warrant this peace that he has just given them? Nothing. They're locked away in this room because they're scared to death. They can't even face the crowds outside. They've not believed what he was going to talk about, his resurrection. They are so scared. They're not contributing anything to their salvation of forgiveness or peace. And look back over the last week of Jesus' life. Every single disciple has deserted him, as we saw on Friday with with Ian at Good Friday. Peter cursed him and denied him. Thomas here doubts him. They're hopeless. They're not great examples of stoic religious faithfulness. And in the midst of this mess of feelings and fear and desertion, Jesus stands in front of them all and says, because of what I alone have done, peace be with you. You are given peace and forgiveness and eternal life. I alone achieved that, and I am here to prove it. 
What is the only thing they need to do? Whereas Jesus asked of disbelieving Thomas, don't disbelieve anymore, Thomas, says Jesus, but believe. And now is the time in which you do that. Peace with God means sins forgiven. Peace with God means death is not the end. Peace with God means eternal life is yours. If only you would reach out and grasp it and believe in the crucified, risen Lord Jesus. Oh, I believe, says Thomas, as he calls on Jesus' real name and falls at Jesus' real feet, exclaiming, my Lord and my God. That brings us very quickly to our last point this morning. The third thing that Thomas has come to believe, and that is that Jesus now reigns and asks us to follow him and have him as king of our lives. You see, the resurrection is not just that Jesus is risen. It is not even just that Jesus brings peace and reconciliation between perfect God and fallen humanity as he deals with sin and deals with death. But the resurrection proves that Jesus is everything that he said he was and everything the whole of the Bible claimed him to be. God, king of the universe, and in his risen flesh is alive now, reigning and ruling in his risen glory now, almighty God and king of the earth now, present within this very room now. And as such, as, as all, he's always asking fallen humanity now to believe in him, to follow him, and to be a part of his eternal kingdom. Even now, this very moment in your hearts, asking you to make him king of your life. For you see, the whole of the Bible has claimed that God would send his ruler, King Jesus, to be the saviour of the world. And the whole of the Bible has pointed towards there who would be a king, who would have an eternal kingdom that death couldn't defeat. And here he is, Jesus doing something that only God can do, and he does it. He proves he is the eternal king. Death hasn't defeated him. He proves that he alone is God in the earth, the only one powerful enough to beat death. And you might be sitting here after all of this and saying, well, this is all well and good, Sam, but the truth is dead people don't raise from the dead. And the Bible says to you, I know. Which is why the resurrection is here, because we can't rise from the dead. God had to do something about that. And God could be the only one who could do something about that. Only God could do and prove that, A, there is a God. B, that God is Jesus. And C, that that God has done everything to bring humanity back into a relationship of peace with him. Proving that that peace offers a bodily resurrection from the dead for all who believe in him. As we close this Easter Sunday morning, and perhaps open up the floor to some questions later, Easter, Jesus leaves us with the biggest decision of our lives. For if Jesus did rise from the dead, and I put it to you this morning that he did unquestionably rise from the dead, then he is God. There is a God, and it is Jesus, and he alone can save you and forgive you. And he alone is the resurrection and the life. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He, he alone is alive today and has a claim over your life as king of the universe. And he wants you to choose him now, this very morning, to, to, to invite him into your heart, to, to, to ask for forgiveness, to, to ask for you to be saved while you still have life in your bones to make that decision. And throughout all of history, Jesus says every single moment to anyone who has ears to hear the words of verse 27, Sam, do not disbelieve, but believe. To any of you sitting here for the first time, do, do not disbelieve. Don't keep putting me off. Believe in me. He wants you to go one better than Thomas. We who have not seen Jesus with our eyes 
and put our trust in the God-ordained, Jesus-appointed, spirit-inspired, unimpeachable, beyond all reasonable doubt, reliable eyewitness testimony of these godly men and women and say, yes, my Lord and my God, I now believe. That is why we're here as a church. We're obsessed with the Bible because it alone holds the best news in the world, the only way to be saved, to be forgiven, and to meet with your God in peace for eternity. 4 verse 31 of our passage this morning, these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, may, by believing you may have life in his name. Let me pray for us as we close. Father God, thank you and praise you so much for this wonderful reminder for those of us who are Christians of just what it is that you have done for us. Thank you for the incredible power and hope and, and, and the, the facts and the truth of the resurrection. Thank you that Jesus beat death for us. Thank you that, that, that we can call him our Lord and our God as we see him do the only things that God can do. The, 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 everything that the Bible said that he would do, um, dying for sin and taking up his body again from the grave and, and now reigning and ruling in his resurrected glory on the throne. Father God, I pray for all of us here. For those of us who know you, I pray that we would be won over again by the wonder of the cross and the power of the resurrection. For those here who don't know you and are searching and, and are really wanting to know more about you, I, I, I pray that the resurrection would, would, would steal upon their hearts, that they'd be um, intrigued to want to know more about you, our God, and that they would see in you the person that we see in the Bible, the one who loved us to death so much that he gave up his body so that we might be free and live peaceably with the God of eternity. We pray all these things with great thanksgiving in the name of Jesus. Amen.